Good to have all of our visitors here, folks we know, folks coming back, folks coming to say hi. We hope you feel really comfortable here. For the benefit of our visitors, I'll say we are in the Corinthian letters. So if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we've been um, studying Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, his first letter, for quite some time. And um, we have been in that portion of the letter where the apostle is discussing the issue of um, meat offered to idols and the question of whether or not it's appropriate for the Christians in Corinth to be eating meat bought from the meat market that might have been offered to idols. And, um, and in that discussion, the larger issue of, of giving consideration to the other person acting in Christian love and by that meaning to consider the question of the other brother or the other sister whose conscience um, is stirred and may not feel they should be eating meat or meat should be eaten because of the connection in that situation with idolatry. And then from that issue, the issue of Christian love, consideration of the other, expanding to the issue of conscience. And we talked last week a lot about that, exactly what our conscience is, the importance of our conscience, keeping our conscience clean, alert, properly informed, being conscious of what informs our conscience, and then respecting the conscience of others. We talked about that. So all of this grown out of this or coming out of this conversation about the eating of meat. Huge issue, huge issue because of the situation in Corinth. So here in chapter 10, Paul, at least for the time being, wraps that whole issue up. Okay, He's not completely through, but he's said most of what he has to say about it. And so we're going to just take the first half of the chapter this morning. So if you've got your Bibles open, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to look at the first 13 verses. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard uh, for those who are following along. Uh, Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall." No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Father, we thank you for your word. We come to you this morning, Lord. And, and Father, we confess both our dependence on your word, and Father, all too often our neglect of it. We ask, Father, that you'd help us this morning as we turn our thoughts and attentions to it, uh, to have your way, Father, in all that is said, all that is heard, Lord, that your purpose might be accomplished in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
Uh, at first, the reading of this chapter is, is plain enough. I mean, the meaning is right there. Uh, don't do evil stuff. Pretty straightforward. Don't desire evil stuff. Don't fix your desire on evil stuff. If you do evil stuff or we do evil stuff, there's serious consequences. Even for the people of God living under His grace and mercy. Do evil stuff, bad things happen, right? Pretty straightforward. But I would suggest there's actually more than even that there. Though that would be enough. If that's all we got out of it was don't do evil stuff, we'd probably be doing pretty well. Uh, but, there, but there's more, so we'll want to look at that too. So let's begin, again, with the obvious stuff. Uh, verses 1 through 10, and again, I hope you're reading these chapters beforehand. You know the order we're going in. Uh, it begins with a recitation of Israel's failures, and it focuses on the failures in that window of time as they're leaving and right after they've left uh, Egypt in the Exodus. And the Old Testament, you know, it, it's full of, of corrections and people pointing out Israel's mistakes. I mean, the prophets, they talked a lot about that. But most of that, like in the prophets, it focuses on stuff that was contemporary to the prophets later in Israel's history. Paul goes all the way back to the very beginning, the nation coming out of Israel, and he focuses on that window of time, and he lists five specific ways they were blessed and five specific ways they failed. It's very Hebraic, balancing the five and five like that, right? The first he begins with this general statement, I don't want you to be unaware. Now, that was a common phrase in first century, even secular writing, but it's especially poignant here, because what he's saying is literally, I don't want you to not know. And of course, knowledge is a huge thing for the Corinthians. We've talked a lot about this. They were really keen on just how much they knew. And the whole letter, of course, we've talked about is based on all these divisions in the church. And Paul is addressing the divisions. And, and the divisions themselves were sometimes more important than the cause of the division as far as he was concerned. And how much they knew, these different groups knew. Knowledge was a huge thing. So when he says, I don't want you to be not knowing, he's like kind of poking them a little bit. He's going to get their attention, that's for sure. I don't want you to know. And then he says, brethren, our fathers were, and he lists these five things, all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, all ate the same spiritual food, all ate the same spiritual drink. And then he adds this note that they were drinking, regarding that fifth blessing, from a rock which followed them, and that was Christ. We'll come back to that in a couple of minutes. But just to point out, he begins with five blessings they experienced from God as they left Egypt. And then he gives his five examples of failure, beginning in verse 5. Uh, he begins, nevertheless, with most of them, the people as a whole experienced these five great blessings, and then most of them, he says, kind of looking at individuals, a God was not pleased with them. And he, um, he enumerates five examples of failure. Number one, and each one of these things he enumerates goes back to something very specific in that Exodus story, right? Um, he says they craved evil things, right? And that connects back to what happened in Numbers 11 when things started to get tough. They were on their way out, and they started to grumble because all they had was this lousy manna to eat, this bread that came from heaven, and they said, where's the meat? We miss the fish. We miss the great vegetables. We miss all that good stuff, right? Where is all that stuff? And they started to complain. And that's when God you know, gave them the quail. And they got sick of quail, and then the plague broke out. They died from the plague, right? That's the first one. They craved evil things. The second thing, they were idolatrous, and that specifically references the golden calf. Right? Moses is up on the mountain. 
Whereas Moses were worried, Aaron make us a calf, they sat down and they worshipped. And even, even more than the idolatry, they mixed their idolatry with immorality. And he uses this expression that really doesn't mean much to us. They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Like, what's that? Well, their understanding, it meant to sit down, share that communal meal with the deity. That was the idea. You make the sacrifice, you eat part of the sacrifice, you're eating with the pagan god, and they rose up to play. They threw a wild orgy. And that's connected to the communal meal. It's gross, right? So they mixed their idolatry with their immorality. Verse 8 is the third example. They practice sexual immorality. He's talking about Numbers 25.1. When they're in the wilderness, they stop in Moab, and while they're in Moab, they got involved in all kinds of immorality with the Moabites, and a plague broke out. Verse 4, or rather verse 9 is the fourth one. They tested God. Right? Numbers 21, they complained about the manna. Again, it's the manna. All we have is manna to eat. What's wrong? And God sent the serpents among them. Thousands died because of the serpents. And then the fifth one is in verse 10. They complained about Moses this time. They murmured against Moses. That's number 1641. And another plague came about, and God sent the angel of death. Same angel he sent when they were in Egypt. Angel of death, right? So you've got these five examples of blessing paired up with their five failures, very specific failures. In verse 11, he gets to his point. These things happened to them as an example, and an example to us. Don't do evil stuff. Straightforward. They failed, and when they failed, there were consequences. Right? If that's all we get, we're doing great. But I do think there's a little bit more here, right? And when I say a little bit more, I don't mean anything hidden or any kind of spiritual. No, it's just right there in front of us. We just look at it. Right? When we talk about don't do evil stuff, and, and the possibility of, of failing or, or falling short, there's some things that we can glean right, right from the text. Number one, don't assume that because you're on the inside, you're hanging with the right people, that you're in good shape. What did he say? He said they all were under the cloud, they all passed through the sea, they all were baptized into Moses, they all ate the same spiritual food. All, everything is all. Everybody, was, everybody went through that experience. But... With most of them, God was not pleased. So just because you're hanging with the right people or with the right group um, doesn't necessarily mean you're in the right place or I'm in the right place. Um, and I would also add that everything that is in this account, and this is one of the reasons I think Paul went back to the Exodus experience, is that all of this happens when they're under a place of absolute grace and mercy. When we think the people of Israel and the Old Testament, we think, oh, well, under law, right? This started before the law was even in their hands. The whole golden calf experience, they didn't, even, they didn't receive the law yet. The law is still up on a mountain with Moses. They were brought out of Egypt, how? Through grace and mercy. That, they had nothing they did to warrant that. And I think that's why he makes that reference to they drank from the same spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. Jesus was there ministering grace and mercy even from the beginning. So they're in a place of complete grace and mercy. And yet, they presumed because they were part of the group, they were okay. Not the case, right? That's the first thing. Don't assume because you're in the group or on the inside that you're good with God. Um, don't assume that we have any special advantage 
because of who we are, of our name or our background. There are no special connections in the kingdom, right? No special connections. The entire portion of these ten verses refer to the Old Testament. What strikes me about this, though, is as Paul is pointing to all these Old Testament experiences, he doesn't explain any of it. Do you note that? If you read these first ten verses and you don't have a pretty reasonable background in the Old Testament, you're left thinking, what's he talking about? Why would he do that? Well, he begins that portion by saying, now, brethren, our fathers. One of two things is possible. Either he's making the point that the entire Corinthian church, Jew and Gentile, trace their spiritual lineage back to the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think that's true, but that's not the point he's making. Paul is focusing on the Jewish component in the church, and that's why he says things that would leave the Gentiles somewhat going, what's he talking about? Unless you have a pretty good understanding of the Old Testament, I mean, these things don't automatically know what he's talking about. We've talked about the fact that the church was so divided, it was divided among any number of issues, and Jew and Gentile was most certainly part of it. He is honing in here on a Jewish perspective within the church that assumed they had the upper hand because they had a Jewish background. Paul is saying, forget it. You don't have any upper hand. I'm always struck when people, you know, they talk to me and they say, oh, you're, you know, you're such a good place because, you know, you have a Greek background and you can read Greek. Great. That just makes me more accountable. Or then they find out that, okay, I was raised as a Greek, but I'm ethnically Jewish. I was adopted into my Greek background. And I frequently go, oh, that is so cool. You're Jewish. So what? That doesn't excite me one bit. You know what excites me? Christ died for me. His blood was shed on my behalf. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied for me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. That's what puts me in a good place. Nothing about my ethnicity or my background or my upbringing, right? Don't assume because we have any kind of connections Nope, nothing there. Another note, and this one really strikes home, at least for me. Beware the gradation of sin. The gradation, not degradation, that's two, but the gradation of sin. We look at this list and we go, wow, man, they were involved in idolatry. Not me, I'd never do that, right? Well, I'm good on that one. Uh, sexual immorality, never. Mingling sexual immorality with idolatry, no way, I would not do that kind of thing. Test the Lord, maybe a little but then I repent really quick, you know. But just like grumbling or complaining, that's not that bad, right? That's the one to which he says the angel of death responded. The very one that went to Egypt to slay the firstborn. And that for grumbling or complaining. Yeah, there's, our, there's differences in the seriousness of sin as far as their consequence. You know, people will say, you know, Jesus said, and it's true, Jesus said, if you hate your brother in your heart, it's like killing him. There is a difference. The guy is only dead at the end of one of those. He's still alive. At the, both are sin. Con, immediate consequence is different. But sin is still sin. Right? 
there's some really serious stuff here. And it's re- those warnings are really, str- really strong. And there's more. Verse 12, and this is where I think it gets really relevant, as if we haven't already found plenty. Uh, verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Here he's really getting to the point, right? This, this summarizes the whole like last two and a half chapters. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And it's a warning to us. The key is the phrase, who thinks he stands. The one, he or she, thinks he's in a really good place, or she's in a really good place, can really be in trouble. Now, that does not mean we cannot have surety in our salvation. That does not mean that. John is very clear in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, you may know you have eternal life. You may know, and that word is evil. And it means to know from careful observation. By observing the things that John had written, considering the things that John had written about the person of Christ, I can come to a very sure knowledge that my my soul is saved. I'm in a right place with God. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Right? Um, Nothing wrong with thinking. God gave us a brain, expects us to use it, wants us to use it to its fullest, but this is different. He who thinks, the word is vokeo, vokeo, and it's not the normative word for thinking in the New Testament, right? Um, Common word, but not normative. The Greek language is a language much consumed with thinking. The Greeks will tell you that, right? Um, They will tell you how smart the Greeks are, right? Actually, I think it's more to do with the language than the people. Because even a lot of non-Greeks in antiquity did really well. People like, you know, Philo, a great Jewish scholar, right? A lot of great things were written. The language is very much about thinking. And there are lots of words in the language about thinking. And normally, when we talk about thinking, like we think of thinking, um, we use a word like logizome, right? It's, it's based on our word, same word for logic, right? And logizome is better understood in one of its compounds, which is via logizome, which is where we get our word dialogue. Dialogizome, dialogue. What is a dialogue? It's two people conversing about something, right? Well, logizome, when we think, is kind of the same thing, only it's one person doing all the talking, right? We get, we get a thought in our head, right? And we go, well, I wonder if that's true. And you start weighing things, and you start analyzing it, and a dialogue goes back and forth in your head. That's what we think of it. That's how I think of thinking. You know, you have an idea, and we think in a language, right? Word comes up, you start thinking about it, you process it, good idea, bad idea, or I'll have to look. That all is this conversation in your head, right? That's kind of the usual process by which we think about, you know, thinking, right? But vocao is different. It doesn't focus on the process. It focuses rather on a conclusion. A conclusion. And the best way to appreciate the distinction is just, I'm going to give you a real quick cross-section of how this word shows up in the New Testament. And you can get a lot about this word just by seeing it in, in, these, in these few verses. Uh, Mark 6.14. Uh, the disciples, I'm sorry, Matthew. Matthew 6.7. Um, the word of the Lord is speaking Um, to his followers, and he says this, When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose, dokeo, it's that word, they suppose they'll be heard for their many words. 
Uh, Mark 6, 49. The disciples react to Jesus when they see him walking on the water. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed, dokeo, right, that he was a ghost, and they cried out. Luke uses it, 8, 18. So take care how you listen. For whoever has to him shall more be given. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks, dokeo, right, even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. John 5.39, our Lord says, You search the scriptures because you think, Gokeo, that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify, he said, of me. Right? Um, the Apostle Paul uses it a lot. Uh, he uses it in this passage throughout Corinthians. He writes this in Galatians 6.3, If anyone thinks, Gokeo, anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself, right? The author of Hebrews uses the word, 12.11 as an example, all discipline for the moment seems, okay, seems to, not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And then lastly, James 1.26, if anyone thinks, okay, anyone thinks himself to be religious, but does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart, the man's religion is worthless. Now, I use those verses because except for Peter, who doesn't use the word, it's used by every author, of the New Testament. It's spread across the New Testament. But did you get the pattern in those verses? Right? Um, it refers to thinking that is presumptive, thinking that is errant, thinking that's well-intended but wrong, um, not fully thought through. Um, it's based on superficial appearance. That's really where the word comes out of the idea uh, basing knowledge or thinking simply on an immediate visual, the appearance. The disciples, a classic example, they see Jesus, they think he's a ghost, and they respond based on the idea that it's some kind of spirit, but it's not. It's Jesus. They reacted without really considering what was going on, right? It's opinions based on appearance. Uh, the German scholar Dietrich Muller, and this is a paraphrase, he said, the conclusions reached by and expressed in Vokeo tell us more about the person expressing their opinion than the opinion itself. When we see this idea, this kind of thinking, vocal thinking, we know more about the person than about what they actually said, right? And that's biblical. It actually is. Uh, like when Jesus said to the disciples, you know, who do you think I am? You know, we discussed who the crowds thought I am. And then he says, who do you think I am? Why is he asking that? Does he need help? Is he like really confused at the moment? His self-awareness has gone to pieces and he wants their input? No. He wanted them to say who they thought he was because that would be an expression of where they were at. It would force them to come to terms with what they really thought about him and, and articulate that. That's stokeo, right? It's, it's an opinion offered that says more about the person speaking than about the opinion itself, right? You know... We start talking about our opinions, and that's what this really is. Our opinions say an awful lot about us, right? Our opinions speak about our perspectives, right? What are the assumptions that we bring on, on any issue? And it doesn't matter. It can be a theological issue or a financial issue or something about what the government's anything. Anything's going on, right? Our assumptions are incredibly powerful in determining the conclusions we draw, right? We all know this experientially. So it's really critical... As we approach any issue, especially if it involves our spirituality and where we're going to spend eternity, 
Um, am I making some assumptions here that aren't, aren't the best? I need to check my assumptions, right? Really critical. Ask ourselves, what are my assumptions going in? Um, our opinions in, express how we process things. Am, have I thought this through with an agenda? Am, am I trying to get to a point rather than just saying, what's the truth here? Our opinions really tell a lot about our agenda, our priority. How do I handle contrary information that comes my way? Do I just find a way around it? Or do I give it adequate thought? Am I really open to ideas? Or do I simply denigrate ideas I don't agree with, right? How firmly do I hold my opinion? Now, there's nothing wrong with being confident in what we say, what we believe, what we assert with confidence. But when my confidence in my opinions blinds me, to where my opinion might not quite be right, I, I better be ready to back up and ask myself, most importantly, most importantly, how well can I distinguish between what I think and what I actually know? If you think about it, most arguments in families or in churches, in any group you want to put together, most arguments are about what we think rather than what we know. Because we tend to agree on what we really know, and we disagree on well, what we just happen to think, right? That is so critical, because he says, let him who thinks you're of the opinion you stand be really careful lest you fall. Remember, he's talking primarily to the Jewish community in this church, and they really think they're in a good place. After all, they're Jewish. And they've got one up on the Gentiles in the church, because they know Scripture so well, right? Well, you need to be careful, Paul tells them, right? You're in a really dangerous place, right? Because if you fall, you're going to have nobody else to blame. And then he says this, and this is going to be a case where I'm going to tell you not to look at your Bibles. This is quiz time. And I'm not, I'm not testing what you know, I'm testing what you've been taught or heard. I'm going to read the verse, and then I'm going to stop. And don't you have to do it out loud, but I want you to finish the verse in your mind. And most of us are familiar with this verse, right? We know it experientially, right? So just... Listen, and when I stop, finish the verse. Paul says this, and it's in the context of this whole matter. He says in verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide... What was the... You went ahead and spoke up, so I'm going to get you. man. What was the first word you said? But will provide... A way out. Sorry, you're wrong. Somebody else. Brave soul. Anybody that said A, anything, was wrong. The way out. It makes all the difference. And by the way, before I studied this these last two weeks, if you had given me that test, I would have said a way out. Still feel bad, right? Yeah, I feel bad. It's what we've all heard, right? We've all heard it that way. What's the difference? What does a way out mean? Okay, I'm dealing with a problem here. And so I start, okay, how am I going to deal with i got a sin I'm dealing with. How am I going to overcome it? Oh, I know so-and-so over here. He struggled with that same sin. I'm going to call him. I'm going to find out what he did because God has this list of solutions to various problems people may have. And I'll find the one, a way to respond to my difficulty, or I'm facing a crisis in my life, and it's a health issue, or whatever, and I need to know which one of all of the possible ways I could respond, which is, oh, by the way, all that's true, but that's not what he's saying here. What is he saying here? When we are in a place of need, 
right? When we are struggling with the issue, he's specifically addressing sin here, God will provide the way out. And that way has a name. It's the rock that followed them in the wilderness. It is Jesus. And he's saying to the Jewish part of this church, you got nothing on anybody else because the only reason you're in right standing is because of him. And he's saying to the Gentiles in the church, don't be dissing on the Jews just because they're snobs and because they're all messed up. Guess what? You came to Christ the same way they did. The way. There is but the way. That's good news. God makes the way of escape. And, and by the way, all those things that we do, those mechanisms that we use, the help that we seek, the prayer we seek, the counsel we seek, when we're dealing, that's all perfectly valid. I don't mean to denigrate any of that, but if it's not rooted, if it doesn't come back to that one person who's the way, the way. I so love that last song we sang. Is anyone worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? If you know the book of Revelation, John was weeping when the question was asked. Everything depended on there being somebody that could break the seal and open the scroll. Because until that happens, nothing moves forward. He is. Whatever situation we're facing, if it is a sin, if it's a challenge in our body, or whatever it is, there will be things we have to do, but ultimately it comes to the one able, break the seal, open the scroll. And the only opinion that counts is his. Father, I thank you, Lord, as, we, as we're working through this passage, Lord, and um, this, whole, this whole book, Lord, because it is so much like us. We are so much like the Corinthians, Lord, and we deal with so many of the same issues. And ultimately, Father, it all comes back to our thinking that we in some way can do it without you, <laughs> that we will find a way to navigate it, that we just don't have to walk in that complete and utter dependence on you. That is such folly, Lord. Because when we start thinking about that, we start thinking that way, we get a bad opinion, we're in a really good place to fall. And we don't want to fall. We don't want to fail. We don't want to fail you. We don't want to fail our families. We don't want to fail ourselves, Lord. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that um, as we go through our day and we deal with all the stuff that we deal with, Lord, yeah, we'll take advantage of, of all the good books and the good teaching. We're going to take advantage of all of that, Father. But when it comes right down to it, we will never forget where our hope is truly focused, what, who our source truly is, and that is the person of your Son. And as fathers, we react to one another in the various issues that we face. And, and our differences rise up. I pray, Father, that commonality that we share, the person of your son, our complete dependence on it, and the free grace with which he extends it to us, and the free mercy which he pours out on us, that that would be, Father, where we connect. Help us, I pray, to that end. In Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.